So when I was in seminary, um, getting ready for the pastorate, in our classes, one class in particular, we would have missionaries visit regularly, and they would come in and share stories about what God was teaching them, what missionary life was like, what it was like to live among nomads in Mongolia. I mean, cool stuff. And there was one missionary in particular, a Bible translator, um, that I'll never forget. She had been in Papua New Guinea, and Papua New Guinea, if you, it's, it's way over there and, you know, off the coast of Asia, and it, it's down there where, where they have, it's very mountainous and all these different people groups and regions, and it's still very, very primitive in parts. Like, like the people group she was working with was one generation away, one, from headhunters. <laughs> yeah, like the people who chop off heads and like wear them like necklaces. So, um, She's going off to this isolated mountain village to, to translate the Bible for these people. And it was so remote that she had to, she said she had to travel three mile hike on a mountain pass to get to a road. And then a bus would pass every two weeks. And that's how she got all of her supplies. And if she decided to take the bus all the way in town, it would be like a, a day, sometimes an overnight trip just to get supplies, bring them back to her little hut. And this is the process of how she lived, you know, for years. All right. She said at first, though, it was no problem for her. She was so excited, like, I'm here to bring the word of God to this people group. And, like, it just, none of that mattered to her. She felt such a deep sense that God had called her to this place. She was ready for it. And then she described how a couple months into her trip, something happened. She got this crazy um, Papua New Guinea disease. She didn't even know what it was, but it was terrible. And she was, um, uh, I just want you to picture this. You are in a remote mountain village in Papua New Guinea. You are hundreds of miles away from any English speakers, hundreds of miles away from any, any medical care, modern medical care that we would know of. You're completely isolated out there. She's stuck in this hut, and she's so sick that for the first week, she said she couldn't get out of the fetal position. All right, so she's sweating, lying there in bed, and then she said over that time, this, her chipper, like, let's change the world for Christ attitude got dimmed. She started asking questions like, why am I here? <laughs> and about two weeks into it, she said she ran out of medication and fresh, fresh food and was so weak that she couldn't make the three-mile hike to the road to get the supplies. So that just passed. She was stranded there, and she said she was down to her supplies, and the only thing she had left on her shelves, two things, oatmeal and powdered milk. She thought, that's okay, in two more weeks I'll be able to get this. But in two more weeks, what happened is there's this torrential downpours that happened, that happened there, you know, like tsunami type things. And, um, and torrential downpours so that she couldn't, she was all washed out. She was stuck in her hut for another two weeks. So a, for a month, this woman had to survive isolated, alone, sick in her hut on oatmeal and powdered milk. She said, at that moment, it broke me unlike any other thing. And I still, I actually took notes on her words that day. She says, it was a time of my most serious doubts. She was angry and confused and her prayers went like this. Why is this happening to me? Why did you bring me here? Do you see how messed up this is? She described this terrible feeling of being let down by God, abandoned, and betrayed and it got so awkward that like have you ever been there where someone shares something really personal and you just sit there and everyone's like holding their breath finally the professor was like so who wants to be a missionary and we're all like no 
somebody else. This is terrible. So I've been a pastor for coming up on 12 years. And you know what I found that the, um, the, the biggest causes of the most serious doubts, the types of doubts that can like wreck our faith and, and send us off course, you know, the, the cause of those most serious doubts are for young people, the number one thing is sex. Yeah, like we, we want to sleep with who we want to sleep with. And if Jesus disagrees, we're more likely to give up Jesus than our lover. It's true. We know the number two thing is for across all ages. The number two thing is pain and suffering. The sense that God has either abandoned us or worse, he is the cause of our suffering and he has let us down. So people walk away. So it's one of the greatest causes of our most serious doubts. And yet, and yet, and yet, on the other side, um, do you know what is one of the the greatest causes of spiritual growth in our life? So um, a few months ago, I was at this group, and there were like about 10 of us there, and we asked, you know, what is the time in your life when you grew most in your relationship with God? What's the time when you grew the most spiritually? And I was sitting there ready to like think, oh, it's going to be stories about going on mission trips, and it's going to be stories about Bible studies and listening to my sermons, obviously. And yet, you know what I heard instead? It wasn't that funny. <laughs> Just can't take myself seriously, can I? Um, I heard suffering and pain. There was a story about breast cancer, a story about a car accident, a story about unemployment a story about abuse, and a story about parents that had done terrible, terrible things to this man. Nine out of ten people there pointed to suffering and pain as the time when God grew them most, loved them the most, walked most closely with them. Now, isn't this interesting? Suffering and pain have this great power to cause the most serious doubts to drive us from God and they have this great potential to drive us to God. They have this great potential to reveal God to us or to hide God from us. So here's the question I'm, I'm honestly struggling with and wondering, like why? Why is it that some people experience pain, loss, suffering, cancer, unemployment, depression, abuse, and they're driven from God, they they can't see God at all, and then other people experience the exact same circumstances, and they meet God deeply there, that they find through that hope and joy and a deeper life. So our text for today going to address that. It's Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Um, If you're new to the Bible, let me introduce you real quick. This was written by a guy named Luke. You guys are sharp here. So Luke was a physician and one of the earliest Christians. So he literally got to go along for the ride with guys like Paul, Silas, Timothy. Like he knew those guys. He was there when they were like the earliest Christians in Philippi were being baptized in the river and and Thessalonica when when the riots broke out and when there were miracles and and blind people receiving their sight and the uh, demon-possessed men like beating people up and stuff. He was there. And so by the time we get to Luke, he's actually writing the gospel of Luke. 
It's about 60 AD, and there's two things in particular going on here. It's 60 AD, so it's about 27 years after Jesus died, rose from the dead. So I want you to think about this. This is kind of like if you're trying to explain to a millennial what it means that the Berlin Wall was taken down. Right? Like, if, if they've never actually experienced that, uh, that thing in school where they're like, now we're going to do the drill in case the Russians come and take us over. Okay, kids? <laughs> like, if you've never experienced that, you, you got some storytelling to do. And that's what Luke's going to do. He's going to say, hey, there's a whole generation coming up that doesn't know this story firsthand and they need to hear it. And the, the second thing that we're going to see in this is that persecution's increasing. So about 60 AD, it starts breaking out big time. In the next few years, by 64 AD, they are going to be feeding Christians to the lions, crucifying them, slaughtering them. Uh, Nero's going to take them, dip them in oil, and then hang them up and light them on fire for his garden parties. 64 AD. In the next few years, an entire generation of eyewitnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are going to be wiped out. So Luke, he's sitting here at 60 AD, and he's like, All these people are going away. The eyewitnesses are going away. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go around and he has access to all these eyewitness accounts. And he says at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke that he's going to carefully investigate. He carefully investigates all these reports and sets out then to write for the next generation. Here's how it really happened. Here's what the eyewitness reports say. And these are the books we know of as Luke and Acts. Now just to push back a little. In the 18 and 1900s, it became very fashionable to say that, well, this story, it's full of like blind people receiving sight and dead people coming back to life. It can't be true. Like it's a nice story that Luke wrote, but it can't be true because those things couldn't be historically accurate. The only problem with this was archaeology. Yeah, so in the late 1800s, early 1900s, discovery after discovery after discovery, Ephesus, Thessaloniki, Corinth revealed that Luke gets every detail right. Everyone that you can verify, he gets it right. Government officials, titles, dates, judicial processes, geographic locations, everything. It's almost like he um, carefully investigated everything and talked to eyewitnesses. Who would have thunk it? So Luke 24, though, Luke 24, how this applies to this is, is when you come to the Gospel of Luke, you're going to find actually just the next, cha- next chapter over in his books, Acts 1. He says that Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he made appearances over a span of 40 days. In that time, he appeared to hundreds and maybe even thousands of people. Uh, the Apostle Paul will say just before this was written, he says that he appeared at one time, at one time, to over 500 people, many of whom are still alive, 1 Corinthians fifteen six. So get this. Luke, has, he's doing a, an investigative study here. He has access to hundreds, if not thousands, of eyewitness accounts on the resurrection, and he is going to pick three Three. So what's my point here? When we come to these accounts and, and the three accounts in, in Luke chapter 24, we can, we can be really sure that Luke didn't just randomly pick these, that he picked these for a reason. Like if there's a story that the next generation of people who weren't there, who didn't see Jesus rise from the dead, who weren't there in that place, if there's a story that they need to hear, this is it. And so we're going to go with the second story. It's Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13, and it starts like this. 
Now that same day, two of them, so this is Easter morning, uh, Easter afternoon at this point. Now that same day, Easter day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. All right, so, so what had happened here? There's, there's two individuals, they're leaving Jerusalem, right? They're on this road to Emmaus. So they were in Jerusalem for a festival called Passover. This was a uh, pilgrimage feast. Every able-bodied Jew had to go there, or Jewish man had to go there. So there were millions of Jews there, and they all, it just ended, they're all going home. So they're walking on the road, going home. And here's the thing. This was a special Passover, though, right? When they first came in, that when it first started, it starts with this bang, right? Jesus, Jesus shows up last Sunday. He shows up, and he comes in as king, Like he's this prophet, he's this healer, and everyone's like, he's it. He's going to save us. He's our hope. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to do everything for us. But by the end of the week, Jesus ends up crucified. And these guys witness Jesus nailed to a cross. And it does what it's intended to do, which is it horrifies them. Last January, um, there was a headline. I'm not sure if you guys saw it, but there's several universities are now issuing warnings to theology students that tutors and professors now have to warn their students that learning about crucifixion might be distressing. Check this out. Bible students are warned you may find the crucifixion too upsetting. <laughs> so on the one hand, this is, this is utterly ridiculous, right? You have Bible students who don't realize that the cross is, like, distressing, it's upsetting, it's disgusting, it's horrifying. And yet, something about this I actually really liked. It's like someone in our modern world didn't just think of some symbolic thing, but they actually looked at the cross. And they realized it's horrifying. Crosses were not just an instrument of execution back then. There were a lot cheaper, easier, faster ways to kill people. Rome chose crosses because it was a symbol of dominance. That we won't just defeat you, we will humiliate you, shame you, destroy you slowly so that everyone who sees it knows that you stood up to Rome and that's what happens. These two travelers had seen the cross And it was upsetting. Verse 15, it says this. They talked and uh, discussed these things with each other. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up to them and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing them. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still faces down. So I want you to picture this. They're discussing this scene, what just happened in this last week, and they're literally stopped in their tracks by this stranger, and they're reeling because they just witnessed this dehumanizing evil, this pain and suffering at a scale we can't even, we can't even fathom in our modern world because we, we were so protected and so bubble-wrapped on everything, right? I rode my bike the other day, and I, I don't have a bike helmet. Shame me. I know. Kids don't do like me, Okay. But everyone shamed me on that. They're like, why don't you have a bike helmet? And I'm like, when I was a boy, 
<laughs> Didn't need no. This, our world is so bubble wrapped. So we've all got our little helmets on and our safety things on. But back then, can I can I tell you the cross was so disgusting, so revolting, so that they had to come up with a new word to describe the type of pain that happens on the cross. It's called excruciating. It literally means from the cross. These guys had experienced that. They had seen something in this guy named Jesus. They had seen this life, this peace, this power that, that they'd never seen before, this grace, this, this justice, this love for the brokenhearted. And it stirred them. They're like, yes, he's our hope. He could be the one. Like everything about him, they, they thought, they hoped, they wanted to believe that he was different than others, that he could really save them. But on Friday, he's humiliated, mutilated, and killed And it wasn't just Jesus dying there. This is like the hope of the nation. It's their hope that God could actually save them. So here's the question we come to in the text. Like, how do you keep moving forward in your life with pain, suffering, and death looming over you? Pain and suffering and death have a way of ruining everything. So uh, a few weeks ago, I was listening to this guy. If you guys have been around, you know I like my, my science guys. This guy's awesome. Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist and rock star of modern science. I, I don't give him that title lightly. He really is. He's awesome. And, um, and I was listening to this interview with him, and it went interesting because the interviewer asked him a question that was a little out of his expertise. It says, so... You're, you, you know everything about science and the stars and physics. Um, so what is the meaning of life? And like, I'm sitting there thinking like, is everyone okay? No? <laughs> yes, it's a big question. So, all right. But, so I'm sitting there thinking that this is interesting because science, if you know anything about science, you know that that's a, that's a question that science can't answer. Right? Science can tell us all kinds of amazing things about life, but it cannot tell you meaning, value, purpose type questions. It's not interpretive like that. It's like asking a calculator, um, what color should I paint my wall? It's like using like a, a tape measure to, to, to measure love. Like it doesn't work. It's broken, all right? So I was hoping this guy would point that out. I was hoping he'd say, you know, I can tell you what I personally think, but science doesn't speak to this, but he didn't. He declared that there is no meaning in the universe... So it's entirely up to individuals to construct their own meaning. Personally, he finds his meaning, get this, in learning new things. He says, if I could just help the human race progress by contributing to our knowledge, my life would be fulfilled. And I was like, that is great. That is so empowering. We can all make up our own meaning in life. I just had one little question, though. So what happens if Neil gets a stroke and has to spend the rest of his life learning how to speak and eat and walk again. Does that mean his life has no meaning? Does that mean he's valueless? See, pain, suffering, and death, they have a way of ruining all the ways we construct meaning and value in our life. So if I find my meaning in my intellect, what happens if I have a stroke? If I find my my meaning in my job, what happens if I lose it? If I find my meaning in my looks, what happens when I get old? If I find my meaning in my spouse, what happens if she leaves me? If I find my meaning in my kids, what happens if they reject me? 
Pain, suffering, and death have a way of ruining all the ways we construct our meaning and purpose in life. And this is exactly what those guys on the road to Emmaus are experiencing right here. They had this idea of what their meaning in life, of how it was all going to work out, and it was collapsing around them. And so they're in this place of despair. It's a life defined not by hope. Hope is dead. But by suffering, pain, and death. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas, great name, by the way. You guys can use that on your kids if you want to. Free of charge. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened these days? So, so this, yeah, I'm waiting to catch this. The irony here is so thick, like you could like serve it up with a cup of coffee on the side. Like these guys, they're like complaining that Jesus, the stranger, doesn't know what's going on when in fact they're talking to Jesus. They're the ones who don't know what's going on. Verse 19, what things he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. They just listed out all the evidence. Every single piece of it, all the pieces of the puzzle are spread out right in front of them, right there. I mean, they just said, Jesus of Nazareth was from God. He was handed over to the chief priests and rulers to be sentenced to death and crucified. We had hoped that he would redeem us. It's the third day. Some women report that the tomb's empty and he is alive. They've seen angels. So all the pieces, Jesus died for our sins to redeem us. He rose from the dead. They have all the pieces and yet, and yet, and yet. They have no idea how these pieces fit together. Like it's completely hidden to them. They can't see what's happening right in front of their eyes. And the text, all it's going to say is in verse 16, it says, they were kept from recognizing him. And here's the question I want to ask. I want to spend a few moments on what kept them from recognizing him? What, what is the cause of this spiritual blindness? How is it that Jesus could be right in front of them before their very eyes and they don't see him even though they see all the evidence? So I want to point to three things, and these are not necessarily original to me, but why can't they see Jesus? This is what interpreters have been seeing for the last 2,000 years. The first thing is that they are blinded by pain. It's really, really clear. They've just seen crucifixion. Their own hopes and dreams have been destroyed. And if there's one thing that we can prove now scientifically is that pain, physical, emotional, often used the word clinically, we use the word trauma, is not good for cognitive thinking. Let me um, say this clearly. When we experience pain, we cannot trust our ability to see things clearly. Do you hear this? Some of you are in pain right now. You need an outside perspective. You need someone outside of the pain to speak into that for you. 
you can't see when you're in that much pain. Number two, they can't see because Jesus looks so ordinary. You might say extraordinarily ordinary. He looks like a stranger, like a man walking on the road. So um, before I was a pastor, I was a doorman at a hotel, a job which I rather enjoyed. I got to wear this big old suit and the giant top hat. And it was at this little luxury boutique hotel in Dallas. It had this uh, famous piano bar. And it was like a who's who of Dallas coming through. So like a normal day, it's like Mercedes, Audi, BMW, Lexus, occasional Ferrari, Lamborghini. I mean, it's Dallas. It was awesome. And so one day, just it's a normal day. Boom, boom, boom. Parking all these cars, all these wealthy people and famous people coming in. It's great. And then up pulls this um, Mercury Grand Marquis. Now, I didn't think anything about it because it's a Mercury, right? <laughs> like, nothing extraordinary about that. And this old guy pulls up, gets up, and I do my best doorman, like, open it up. Good evening, sir. Welcome to the hotel. Blah, blah, blah. Can I get your name? And he just totally ignores me. And so I like, I look at the guy in the face and he has one of those faces that's like, (laughs) old guy that's like way Botox gone bad, okay? And he like looks at me, but then he like shakes it off and just walk, like just starts to ignore me again. I'm like, excuse me, sir, can I get your name real quick? So I'm, I'm personally responsible for giving this man this ticket and making sure he gets his car back. Like I personally go to jail if he doesn't get his car back. It's a big deal. And so he totally ignores me again. So I'm like, Maybe he's hard of hearing. So he's, he just walks right past me, starts going in. I run up the stairs and say, excuse me, sir, can I, can I just get your name? And he, at this point, is not a happy man. <laughs> he looks at me and with his great rage says, Jones, you idiot, walks in. And then I turn to the valets and they explain to me that he's the multi-billionaire owner of the Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones. <laughs> Now, why? Why did I not recognize him? Because he looked extraordinarily ordinary, right? There's like a million old men in Dallas driving around like this in their Mercury, right? There's a million. He could have just been any old guy to me, but he wasn't. He was Jerry Jones. When Cleopas and his companion meet Jesus on the road, notice that he is not floating on clouds. There's no halo, no glowing, no like voices from heaven, no entourage. There's nothing. He's just extraordinarily humble, ordinary. He's a man. He's a stranger. Can I just say that too, too many people wait and wait and wait for the skies to open up and for angels to sing the hallelujah chorus and for God to do something miraculous before they decide to become a Christian. I mean, God can do those things. He's done some of those things before. But when I read the scriptures, it sure seems that about 99% of the time when we meet God, we meet him in humility and simplicity and suffering. In fact, Jesus himself is going to suggest that if we can't accept him in humility and simplicity and suffering, then we will never see him when he's spectacular. Why can't they see Jesus? They're blinded by their pain. Jesus looks so ordinary. And the third one is this. They can't see how a cross could be the way to life. Like they don't understand how God works. And this is, this is really, really worth thinking about. If you look back in verse 20, 21, it reads like this. They're explaining to Jesus, the stranger, what happened. They said, they crucified him. 
But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, now we stand in on the other side. No, they crucified him. And that is how he redeemed God's people. That's the victory of the cross. That's what we sang about all morning. But they couldn't see it. They assumed that pain, suffering, death, the cross equals defeat. And it makes sense. You know, if you claim to be king of the universe and you end up nailed to a cross, it seems like defeat. You know, this was um, the number one stumbling block for the ancient Romans. Why they couldn't worship Jesus. He was crucified. I can't worship a man who's crucified. We have this. This is the earliest known depiction of Jesus. So this is from uh, 200 AD. This is a, a thing of graffiti that was etched into the side of a palace in the Palatine Hill, Rome. So late 100s, early 200s. Early, early depiction. Let me show you this a little more close up. Here's... Here's just the lines here. Jesus is on the cross depicted with a donkey head. And there's a guy worshiping at his feet. And it reads, the text there reads, Aleximinos worships his God. That's what Romans thought of a crucified Savior. Like it's revolting. It's obscene. Like they had seen crucifixions and they thought, no way in weakness and death and suffering and pain, no way could a God subject himself to that. They cannot see Jesus because they can't see how a cross could be the way to life. Let, let me remind you that the message of the cross is that God saves us, but it's not from suffering, pain, and death. God saves us through suffering, pain, and death. God does not save us from those things. He saves us through those things. We tend to think that the reason I'm not happy or fulfilled or full of peace or joy is because I don't have enough control or power or money in my life. If I had a better job, if I had more money, if I, if I could control more, if I was more famous, more influenced, if I, had those, if I looked better, if I had those things, then I would be happy, then I'd be fulfilled, then I'd be, have true peace. But it's not true. Um, you, you don't have to believe in Jesus to know this. Just try it. Try to find lasting peace, true happiness, true satisfaction in power, control, money, pleasure. It's empty. It does not work. There's this great paradox, this paradox that by dying we live. There's this great paradox that by giving up control, by letting go, by surrendering to one who's greater than us, that's when we experience peace and joy, and hope, and meaning. It's so paradoxical that it could be right in front of your face and you don't see it. And that's what's happening in this text. Jesus has to show them this is what it means. He says, verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Didn't this have to happen this way? Didn't the Bible always say this from the very beginning? Didn't the Bible say this? And then he says, beginning with the prophets, or with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So notice, when Jesus wants to reveal to these travelers, when he wants to reveal himself, where does he start? He opens the scriptures. In particular, he goes to the Old Testament. 
Genesis 22, Leviticus 16, Numbers 21, Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 31, like he starts pulling these out from Moses and the prophets, all that it says concerning himself. Now, now isn't this interesting? If you wanted to tell someone about Jesus, where would you begin? The book of Leviticus? Anyone? This says so much. This suggests that if we want to see Jesus in our lives, we need to start by seeing him in the scriptures. That get this, get, um, this is this is confront. This is awkward. Eyewitnesses. These are eyewitnesses. Even eyewitnesses needed to see Jesus in the scriptures before they could see him right in front of their faces. I would suggest to you, and this is not a new thought. Then and now, Jesus reveals himself through the scriptures. Um, my favorite verse on this is Ephesians 4, 20, 21 there. It was written about the same time the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, the Christians there, and he says, you know, you've, uh, you've seen how the Ephesians do it. They're all about greed and morality, all those things, but not you, not you. You live differently. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard Christ and were taught in him. And I love this. It's that, that, that first person, you, when you heard Christ, this is not the way you were taught. Now, not, quick geography lesson here. Where's Ephesus? It's way up there. Modern day Turkey. Asia Minor. And where was Jesus? And way down here. Right? He's in ancient Israel. Land of Palestine. It's about a thousand mile difference between the two. So when, when in Jesus' earthly life did he go to Ephesus to talk to the Ephesians? When, when did that happen? It must be in the Book of Mormon, because it's not in ours, friends. <laughs> Maybe this is like after his trip to North and South America or something. Sorry, I didn't mean that mockingly. Just a little bit. Jesus never went to Ephesus. So, so why? Why would Paul say this? How could they have heard Jesus personally if he had never been to Ephesus? They couldn't, unless the Apostle Paul thinks that somehow... When you hear the scriptures taught, when you hear the gospel, you're not just hearing my words, you're not just hearing the scriptures, you're hearing the voice of Christ. It's almost like Paul and Luke think that we can still hear and see and meet Jesus in the scriptures. It's almost as if they're suggesting that this isn't just an ancient book, but this is the very word of God and that through it we can hear and see and personally meet the very God of the universe. Yeah, that's crazy. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day's almost over. So they went in to stay with him. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? The text finishes like this. I don't have a slide, but it finishes like this. They got up, returned at once to Jerusalem, seven miles. They ran, 
They found the eleven and those who were with them assembled with them and saying, it is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on their way and how Jesus recognized them, how they, Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So, so get this story. Two people on this journey of suffering and pain, this journey without hope. And a stranger shows up. He shows them how to seek Jesus in the scriptures. And their hearts burn. Their hearts burn. They invite him into their homes. And when they do that, when they invite them to the inmost place of their lives, their eyes are open to him. They realize that he's been there all along. And they are filled with this hope that suffering, pain, and death they're not done away with. They're not, they're, it's not like they don't exist anymore, but they don't get the last word that through suffering, pain, and death, there's a, there's a cross for sure. But beyond the cross, there's resurrection that nothing, 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 there's nothing that can't be undone. The suffering, pain, death, unemployment, cancer, broken relationships, broken hearts, all of that can be undone by the power of resurrection. And when they hear this, they have to run and tell others. And as the story finishes, it just kind of hangs there with all these questions in the air. And I think that's the point. Like, is Jesus walking with me right now? Do I see him in my life? Do I see him in my pain and my suffering? Do I know this hope that overcomes suffering and death? And despair? And if I do, why am I not running to tell others about it? So, um, that missionary from Papua New Guinea, after she told us that really awkward story about how she almost lost her faith, and we're all like, <laughs> she then told us that when she came back to the States, um, for a furlough, you know, they come over for an X number of months to recover and raise support and all that. While she was back in the States, uh, she went to a doctor to talk specifically about that illness so that she would just be preventative in case anything else came up. And she went through all the list of symptoms and everything. Didn't tell the whole story. He's just a doctor, right? But just wanted to know what kind of a medication should I have with me? What supplies should I take when I go back? And he told her that given the lack of medication, lack of medication there, he would advise, if that should happen again, that she should take it easy for at least a month, just stay indoors for at least a month, and eat a, ba- uh, a bland diet. And he suggested, and she quoted, oatmeal and powdered milk. So what if Jesus hasn't abandoned you in your suffering? What if you're not walking alone? What if he's been there the whole time, but you're blinded by your own pain? You're blinded by his humility. You're blinded by the cross like it's so hard to accept. If you're struggling to see Jesus in your life right now, I just want to recommend two things straight out of the text. The first, maybe we need to open the scriptures and not just to read an ancient book, but to hear him, to see him. There's this great little app called the YouVersion app, free to download. And if you download that, search reading plans. The first one that comes up 
on the Gospel of John is an amazing reading plan that will help you see Jesus more and more and more. Maybe that's where you need to start. Maybe you need to not just hear this as the Word of God, but you need to hear Jesus speaking to you. And the second thing I want to say is that some of you, maybe, I don't know, I don't know where you're at, but chances are that most of us have already seen all the pieces of evidence. So we've heard the story. We're like, like the men on the road, right? We've, we know about uh, Jesus died and we know that he suffered and we know that he lived this miraculous life and he was a man from God. And we know, we know the reports that he rose from the dead. But some, some of us are waiting. I don't know what you're waiting for. Maybe it's a miracle. Maybe it's a voice from heaven. Maybe it's the sky opening up. But can I just invite you that if your heart is burning, maybe it's time to invite him in. So I'm not going to make this real awkward. I'm just going to pray a prayer. And if it's your prayer, let it be your prayer. But I just, uh, my, my, my hope and prayer for all of us is that we wouldn't walk another day alone. Let's close your eyes. God, I just want to give you this day. And right now, I specifically want to pray for those who are here who have not yet taken this step, Lord, who feel their hearts burning. And prayer just goes like this. Jesus, I surrender. I give up constructing my own meaning and trying to make my own way in life. I want you to be my Lord and my God. I recognize that through the cross, you defeated sin and death. You have not abandoned me. I believe your promise, even when I can't see it, Lord, even when I can't see it, even when I can't see it, I believe your promise that you will never leave me or forsake me, that you will be with me to the end of the age. And I trust you with my pleasures, with my possessions, with my identity, and with my pain and suffering. Amen.